right, all right. Once again, thank you for being here. This morning, we're going to be looking at the uh, book of John, John chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John 18. If you use your phone or your iPad, that's fine. I use my iPad and my phone all the time for that. Now, while you're uh, getting there for chapter 18, I want to give you a little background on what's happening. For uh, What's going on is Jesus and the disciples, they've just finished having the Last Supper. It's where we get our communion from. Uh, Jesus had washed their feet. Uh, Jesus told Peter that Peter was going to deny him three times. Somewhere in there, Judas then sneaks out of the upper room. And now it's just Jesus and the remaining disciples in that room. So let's start reading from verse number 1, chapter 18, and this is what it says. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So just for reference here, I want to share a picture with you. This is the actual Kidron Valley. Up here on the left is the Temple Mount, and up near there off to the left would have been uh, an area for the upper room, houses and whatnot, and that's where they would have had the Last Supper. They would have came down the valley, Cross little stream at the bottom, and up here on the right is the Mount of Olives, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So that just gives you a good idea of what's going on and where they were, uh, where everything was happening. Now, there's an interesting piece of information there about the Kidron Valley. The animals that were used in sacrifice up here on the left, there was a small stream that went down into the valley, and that's where they actually washed away all the extra blood and stuff left over from the animal sacrifice. So it was down in the valley. So Jesus and the disciples, when they left the upper room and went down, they would have crossed that valley and stepped over that. And uh, Jesus, knowing he was going to die on the cross and be sacrificed for us, that would have been a very visible, hard thing to see. But they walked right across that and went up into the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, so now Jesus and the disciples walked up the other side, the Mount of Olives, to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane, the name, it's actually a Hebrew word, and it, uh, it means getshemanim, which is a press of oils. So up on the hill, there was an olive press. There was an olive garden up there. They would have collected the, the olives and pressed them into oils. That's where it gets its name. So Jesus and the disciples are up there in the garden, and this is where our story really starts to pick up. Let's read verses 2 to 3 in John 18. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So this book of John, unlike the other Gospels, it doesn't really tell us how long Jesus and the disciples were in the garden before Judas shows up with the soldiers. With what we read, it almost makes it sound like it happened immediately. They got up in there, and then they turned around, and Judas was there. But that's not really what happened. It more than likely there was a couple hours difference. So if you don't mind, I want to jump into the book of Mark, because Mark, chapter 14 in particular, gives us a good idea of what happens in the in-between time, from when they arrive to when Judas then comes up. So Mark, chapter 14, and we're going to start at verse 32. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. Everything's up on the screen behind me. Mark 13, 32 to 34. This is what it tells us. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So this is, uh, this is a profound moment for Jesus, and it's really the only time we see him so distressed. I mean, his own words, to the point of of death. So a really good question is, what drove him to this point? 
How is he, the Messiah of the world, the one who could do all the miracles, all this great stuff, what made him so distressed? What brought him to this point? And the answer is it's probably a couple things. First and foremost, the most profound thing that's coming is the separation that he is going to feel from God the Father. His coming death on the cross, he's going to be taking on everyone's sin. That's huge, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So he just didn't take on the sin, he became all of our sin. Right? And, the, and the Greek word, interestingly, the Greek word for sin is hamartian, and what it means is fatal flaw. So it's a fatal flaw that actually brings death. That's a huge word. I mean, that's a, that's, has some heavy connotation to it. Today when we talk about sin, we like to use words like, oh, it's a mistake. It's an error. And we use that because it makes it easier for us to tolerate our own sin, our own problems. But the biblical definition is a fatal flaw that causes death. That's huge, right? That's a really big deal, right? And the reason that this matters is because Jesus is going to take on all of my fatal flaws, all of your fatal flaws, and all the fatal flaws of the world, right? He's going to become that once and for all sacrifice for all people. And so everything he's going to experience is exponentially more than we could ever imagine as he's hanging on the cross. And also remember, as he's hanging on the cross, right before he gives up his spirit and dies, he cries out to God to the Father. And what did he cry out? He said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken. That's a heavy-duty word. That means to abandon or desert. So while Jesus was up there on the cross, God the Father deserted him, abandoned him. He was on his own. At that moment, he truly became sin. It's a very, very steep price to pay. And what was happening, Jesus knew that was coming. It was so heavy when he thought about it, it distressed him to the point of death, right? That's what he was talking about. Jesus wasn't ignorant, oblivious, or didn't know, or just guessing at what was coming. He knew. It was heavy, heavy duty stuff. And so this is what's beautiful. This is all coming. Jesus knows it. And what does he do? He takes time to take his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. That's how he's going to prepare for this. For a short time, he's going to seek a connection with God. He's going to pray, get reassurance, comfort, to be as close as possible. Now, next part we're going to read, Mark 14, 35 to 36. This is what it says. Going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Peter, I mean, sorry, so Jesus actually has Peter, James, and John. He separates them out from the disciples, takes them a little further into the garden. And then the weight of what's coming, emotionally, physically, it just crushes him, and he just falls to the ground. A grown man just falls to the ground. And then he prays a very, very truthful, but... Uh, heavy-duty prayer. He says, Father, if it's possible, take this from me. And this is the Messiah of the world saying this. If there's another way, any other way, take this from me. Now notice he's not saying, hey, if there's like a, I got some ideas. Let's try this. If it doesn't work, we'll go back to your idea. He doesn't say that, right? It's not at all. He says, listen, everything is possible for you. If it's possible, take this from me. Right? And that's honest. That's true. That's the first part of his prayer. But the second part, 
Not even for a second, a millisecond, does he suggest that God might be wrong in what he's doing. No matter how bad it gets, if this is your will, this is my will too. Your will be done. Now the text tells us then after he prays, he goes back to the three disciples. Verses 37 and 38. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them doing what? Yeah, playing angry birds on their phone. I know, right? Chess, whatever. No, they're sleeping. Imagine what Jesus is going through. He just fell to the ground, crushed. And he goes back and finds his own dudes, his own bros. He's been teaching for three years. He finds them sleeping. And so he says, Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if you think about it, even though Jesus brought the disciples with him, he's still alone. He's completely alone with what he's going through. They fell asleep. Look how he addresses Peter. He, he calls him by his, own old, excuse me, his old name. He says, Simon, Simon, are you asleep? Now, just a short time ago, like we talked about, they were in the upper room. And when Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him, what did Peter say? Never, I will never, ever, I will die for you. Right? Not going to happen. Now, just a couple hours later, they can't stay awake. They can't stay awake. And Jesus calls him by his old name of Simon as a sign of his weakness. Peter is supposedly bold and fearless and yes, anything. Simon is He's human, he's tired, he's weak, he doesn't know what's going on, right? So, so excuse me, Jesus is contrasting the two. And he gives him a warning. He says, you need to watch. You need to pray so that you won't fall into temptation. He said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And the reason Jesus said this is kind of ominous. He's saying, listen, in a short time, you're going to deny ever knowing me. You're going to be tempted to deny that you have ever, ever met me. You're going to forget everything we ever talked about because you're going to be scared for your life. You need to pray for strength. You need to remain connected to the Father. Now the story goes that Jesus goes off two more times and prays this way. And each time he comes back, he sees his disciples doing what? Pray, playing angry birds. Yes, on their phone. Right? No, they're sleeping every time. They're sleeping. And it's the third time he comes back that things really start to pick up. Now, we don't know exactly how long Jesus and the disciples were in the garden before Judas arrives for the soldiers. Again, but it wasn't like five minutes. It was likely a couple of hours because he had to wake them up. He went off to pray. They got tired and fell asleep again. Went off again, and each time it happened. So it was likely one, two, maybe three in the morning. We don't know, but it was late. So let's read the rest of the story. Uh, Mark 14, verses 41 to 42. Returning the third time, He said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. So this is the moment, again, it's late, where Jesus can see the torches coming through the woods. He can see all the men coming. So he gets up and he walks to them. Now at this point, I want to jump back into John 18, because this is where John picks up. John 18, verses 4 to 7. John 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and he asked them. So he approaches the oncoming soldiers. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, he said. And Judas the traitor was standing there among them. 
When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Now, if you read this carefully, you see that Judas and the soldiers appear to be caught off guard a little bit when they arrive into uh, the garden. It actually threw them off a bit that Jesus is the one that approached them. You have to remember, it was very likely late at night, and they were trying to surprise Jesus and the disciples. They were trying to catch them off guard. And, uh, we, and Jesus also knew when Judas was going to arrive with the soldiers. So Jesus, instead of hiding, you know, protecting himself, buying a few more, few more minutes, he actually walks out to them, out of the darkness, and he speaks first. He's in control of the situation. He says, who is it that you want? Why are you here? And someone in the group says, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus just says, that's me. I'm the one. And then something interesting happens. It tells us the soldiers drew back and some of them fell to the ground. This shows how surprised and unexpected they were at Jesus' actions. They were probably a little scared of him. They were probably recoiling a bit, right? They didn't know what he was going to do. Now, John really doesn't go into detail here, but a little later in verse 12, which we're going to read in a second, John tells us there was a detachment of soldiers present. Now, in that time period, a detachment of soldiers meant at least 200 men. There's writings from that time period that describe a detachment of soldiers, and one of them says there were 600 men. Another time we see it says a detachment, and there was 1,000 men. Another one was 200. So in my mind, I don't know, it doesn't tell us for a fact, but in my mind, I think in the middle of the night, getting 1,000 men or 600 men to walk into a small garden to arrest one man sounds like a lot. It could, be, it could have been 1,000, but 200 seems more likely. But regardless, the reason I bring this up, those numbers, even 200 armed men, show how fearful and scared of Jesus they were. Why would you need that many armed men? Why? Right? And when they walked in from the darkness into the garden and surrounded him, and he just comes right out in the middle of them and says, I'm the one. I am him. They were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Something's going on here. This seems like a trap. This is too easy. This shouldn't be that way. Right? And that's what, either Jesus was a madman or he had authority. He, why, was he, why was he not scared of us? Why was he not running? Why is he doing this? Right? I have to remember, Jesus was known for a couple things, his teachings, right? but also his miracles. He did things no one had ever seen. One of his own followers, Judas, was with them. So when he walked out, they had no idea what to expect. And that's why some of them were like, whoa, 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 I'm not, you get in front of me, I'm getting even a shield. They were nervous, they didn't know. And finally, while Jesus, again, never taught or encouraged violence, there was a common myth that time was when, that when the Messiah came on the scene, he would be a warrior king like King David. Lots of power, get people up. And so the soldiers would have known this as well. So when Jesus approached them out of the darkness, there's always like, wait a second, maybe, you know, maybe he's got an army in the darkness that we don't see. They didn't know. They were taking a step back to reassess the situation. And we know that when they stepped back, they didn't immediately jump forward again. Like, to the ready, they kept a bit of a distance. Because Jesus had to ask again, who are you here for? And in verse 8 and 9 tells us, Jesus answered, I told you, I've told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken will be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you've sent me. So Jesus 
200 plus men has to repeat himself. Hey, hey, guys, guys, I'm the one. I've already told you, I am Jesus. I'm the one you're looking for. Then he says, let these other men go. Now, this is cool for a couple reasons. Number one, it's not a request. Look at his words. He's not saying, hey, listen, do me a solid. I'll go quietly. Let these guys go. He's saying, I'm the one. Let these guys go. Right? It's a bold move and a bold statement being made by someone who's unarmed and vastly outnumbered. Remember, Jesus volunteered himself. Now he makes this command. He's showing he's in charge. He's not scared. He's not surprised. He's not concerned for his own safety. And as I said a minute ago, likely Judas and the, and the soldiers were trying to catch him by surprise. Why else go with that many men at two or three in the morning? Right? That's what they had wanted. We know the disciples had a real hard time staying awake, so it wasn't, again, two in the afternoon. It was likely two in the morning. Now, it also kind of begs the question, what did Judas think when he, what was he in his mind when he arrived with 200 men? How scared of he was of Jesus? He knew what Jesus was capable of, what his power was. Why else bring so many men? He knew Jesus had immense power. Remember, Judas was there when Jesus did all those miracles. He saw all of that. And in verse 9 tells us that Jesus told the guards to let the disciples go free to fulfill what he said previously. And what this is referring to, it's an event that happened uh, right after Jesus walks on water. It's in John chapter 6. What happened there was Jesus walked on the water, and then almost immediately later, a large group of people come to him. They flock to him. And they keep asking for a sign. Do a miracle. Do one of those miracles. That's all. We've heard all this stuff. Do it, do it, do it. They don't care who he is. They don't care that he's the Messiah or why he can do it. They just simply want the showy stuff. And this is when Jesus describes himself as being the bread of life. And then he says this in verse 39, John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. His point being that no one can snatch his followers from his hand. They are his sheep. He is the shepherd. And even now with this huge army of at least 200 men in front of him, they can't take the disciples from him. They won't take the disciples from him. Jesus will willingly give himself up, but that will not happen. The disciples have been trained to take his message further once he dies on the cross. Not Judas, not this armed guard, not Satan can stop that from happening. So now as the guards are preparing to arrest Jesus, verses 10 and 11 tell us Peter has other plans. Verse 10 says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now this is a really big event, and it kind of deserves some attention. And I'll say that because while what Peter did was not really well thought out, right? We'll get into that in a second. But what he did, what was in his mind, is actually pretty common. It was a gut reaction done out of fear, right? In the moment, in that spur of the moment, Peter thought he knew better than Jesus, right? What was going on was not planned. Whoa, something's getting out of hand. Therefore, I need to take control of the wheel and act quickly. And I want to pause for a moment and look at some of those thoughts because we've all done that before. Let's look at this first one. Problem number one, being impatient with God's plan. Here's the thought process behind that. God's plan's not going well or happening fast enough, therefore what? Let's try me. Is that not what's happening in Peter's mind? Right? 
And we're in church. Can anyone here agree that you've done that before? Right? You're in church, Almighty. You don't have to raise your hand, but at least inside going, you know what I I have, and I still do sometimes. Let's look at the next one. Problem two, God's plan doesn't make sense. Thought process, since it doesn't completely, since I don't understand the plan in every way, therefore it's flawed, so let's try my plan. Again, what is Peter thinking? This is not how it's supposed to go. He's getting arrested. We're clearly going to lose this one. They're going to take him away. What do I need to do? Go Rambo on him, I guess. Right? Now, we've all been there to some degree. We have to be able to relate to that. While we haven't actually probably hopefully grabbed a sword and swung it at somebody's head, we can understand the mindset that he was in. We've been there. That's why it's, it's really good to have a proper understanding of what's going on in his head. So it's very important. He was scared, understandably so. We've got to give him that. And he was being, being driven by his fear. He lost sight of everything Jesus taught him. All right, and let's be honest. How successful was he likely to be against 200 armed soldiers? I mean, it just wasn't a well-thought-out plan. I mean, Jesus trained them to be disciples, not, what, Navy SEALs or whatever. What was he hoping to do? So that since there's no real hope of Peter successfully taking on all 200 or more, why even lash out? Why do that? Well, the answer was, again, he was scared. He was terrified, and he completely lost sight of everything Jesus had taught him. In the Last Supper, just a little bit ago on the other side of the hill, Jesus told the disciples, you guys are all going to fall away, every one of you. And every one of them was like, that is never going to happen. We're, we're the rock. We're all of us. We are here. But yet that's exactly what they did. Jesus turned to Peter and says, listen, and you in particular, you, sir, are going to deny me three times. Peter's like, never, ever. I would die for you. And we tend to think Peter meant you know, he would take a bullet for Jesus. And there's probably truth to that. But he also probably meant he would die fighting for Jesus. Like if somebody was coming at Jesus, he would stand in front and protect him. Because that's kind of what he was doing here, right? The problem is, though, Jesus never told him to do that. He never suggested that. And here's the biggest single problem with what Peter did. Are you ready for this? Acting out that way meant he did not understand what Jesus was called to this earth to do. He didn't. Jesus was about to do the one and only thing he was called here to do, and that was what? Die for our sins. Die on the cross. If Peter had been successful in defending him, getting rid of all those 200 guys, what would he have done? Prevented Jesus from getting arrested? Crucified dying on the cross to save us. He would have stopped the one thing that would have saved this world, and it was, he was doing it out of fear. And he lost sight of everything Jesus told him. He was going to try to blow it all up. And the strange thing is, Jesus told them this was coming. In several different ways he did. But to kind of highlight how human they are, and how human we are, um, this is one of those questions that I'm going to ask the disciples when they get to heaven. In the Last Supper, Jesus tells them, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all like, oh, who is it? Is it him? It's probably him, right? Him? And Jesus says, it's the one who's going to dip his bread at the same time as me. Right? That's pretty obvious. At which point you would think, I'm not dipping my bread anymore tonight. <laughs> right? <laughs> Love my dry bread. Mmm. <laughs> what happens? He dips his bread. And Judas dips at the same time. None of them pick up on it. Read it again. None of them like jump on Judas. You're the one. Nothing. 
he slips away unnoticed. They're so caught up in everything, their own fears, they're trying to wrap their heads around, they lose sight of even what's right in front of them. How does that happen? They're human. How does that happen to us? We're human. You ever know anybody who goes through an awful something in their life and they completely doubt everything? And I mean everything. They're human. We're human. But when that happens, we should be like Jesus. We go at it with patience. We love them. Think of all the, all the things the disciples have saw, the advantage they have. They saw Jesus do all those miracles. They personally witnessed them, right? They spent three years with him asking him questions, getting to know him. And yet when the moment of truth comes, what happens? They forget everything. Everything. Their own humanness, their sinfulness gets in the way. But this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. This didn't catch him off guard. He knew it was happened. He told them it was going to happen, and yet it still did. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And every one of them said, no way, not happening. And when they said that, you know Jesus was in the back of their mind going, yeah, you are. Yeah, you, you are. He didn't get angry with them, though, did he? He didn't raise his voice. He didn't give them slack. Even when they said that, and he knew it was false, he was still patient with them. He loved them. He taught them. They were being trained up for one single reason, and that was to carry the gospel, the good news, once he died on the cross. Nothing was going to stop that, even their own fear, their own scare. Say nothing. They had a purpose. So here's what's really crazy, too. When Peter swings that sword and cuts that guy's ear off, Malchus, Jesus, who, was, who had already collapsed because the weight of everything, right? And he was praying, and his disciples fell asleep. Now he's being arrested. They cut off the guy's ear. What does Jesus do? Hold on a second. Heals the guy's ear. And goes back and says, okay, now you can take me. What? Jesus was constantly working for the good of others, even the ones who were actively doing him harm. So then we know Jesus was then led away in chains, back down the valley, across the, uh, the, the little stream that would contain all the blood, and then up into the high priest's uh, house. Now, at some point, we know Peter and at least one of the disciples followed Jesus back across that valley. We don't know how long it took them to come out of hiding, but they did. And again, this is where our story picks up. It's in verses 15 to 18. Simon Peter and another disciple, we believe this disciple was John, they were following Jesus. And because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went into the courtyard with Jesus. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Well, you aren't one of his, this man's disciples, are you? She asked, and Peter replied, I am not. And it was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. So again, the other disciple listed here is probably John. And the story goes, John sounds like he had some connections, knew the high priest, and was able to get past the guards, went in, got permission, went back and said, hey, they said it's cool for Peter to come in, my buddy, and so they let Peter in. Now, here's where things get interesting. As Peter enters the gate, he's recognized. A girl says, you're the, you're the one, you're with him, I've seen you with him. Now, before we go into his response, let's think about this. 
that what Peter and John were doing, was it really well thought out? No. Let me tell you why. They had just been with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 200 plus men were there, right? Most of the disciples scattered. We know at least one did not, Peter. Did Peter cover his face or put on a mask? No. What did he do? He grabbed a sword and cut off one of the guy's ears. If you want to stand out to a group of people, cut off one of their ear. And then follow them into a locked courtyard with more guards. Did you think you weren't going to be recognized? For all we know, he may have still been wearing the same sword. What were they going to do? Again, they're not Navy SEALs. They're not going to bust Jesus out of there with C4 and smoke and helicopter. What were they going to do? I know it really sounds funny, but think about it. Are they truly using their heads? No. They're acting out of fear. They probably felt awful that they deserted him. And now they're just trying to squeak in and see what's happening. They had deserted Jesus. They did not have a plan. They didn't know what they were doing. And their situation is getting worse. How could it get worse once inside the locked doors? Peter's recognized correctly. He was there. And at this moment, does Peter remember everything Jesus taught him? No. Does he remember how boldly he stood up for Jesus just a couple hours ago? I wouldn't die for you. No. Does he remember all the miracles Jesus did? He even walked on water a couple steps. Remember that? Does he remember that? Now go, yeah, no. What's he do? With probably a millisecond of thinking, I don't know him. Never heard of him. My name's Dave. And he went this way. (laughs) But you can, that's what he was doing. He was scared. And then there's a really innocuous little, little tidbit that he went to warm himself by a fire. What he likely did, this is totally my opinion. If you were the guard and you outed me, would I want to stand next to you? What would I want to do? Oh, it's cold over here. Yeah, how you doing? I'm Dave. How are you? You want to get away from that, and you want to blend in. He's blending in with the group a little bit away. So here we have Peter. This is where it's interesting. This is, you've got to step back and look. at This is how we have Peter, the disciple on whose faith the church is going to be built. This is one of the reasons why I believe in Jesus Christ. If this was man-made story, if this was fake, no one in their right mind would make up this story and put it in there. Why would you do that? What we're learning is about is the humanity of the disciples. It's just crazy. So how did things get this bad? Here's another question. Why would Jesus allow, why would he put his church at risk like this? Because you know Peter's not, I'm not going to ruin it for you too much, you know Peter's not done denying Jesus, right? If you know the story, don't tell your neighbor. We're going to cover that next week. (laughs) But we need to ask ourselves, why? How does his own disciples get to this point? And those are good questions to ask. But they're going to help us understand why Jesus really came here. And it's going to help us. Because when we hit rock bottom or you have a friend or family member, if you haven't, they're going to at some point. This is going to help us. Why again? Why all this? The reason goes back to why Jesus was sent into this world. He was sent to rescue this world. One, to save us from our sins, and then to build us up, to be there for others. His disciples, his church, this building you're in right now, was meant to be a place of comfort and hope when everything crumbles. 
And he told his disciples that all this was going to happen so they would know to give them hope. When he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times, Jesus says something really profound, and a lot of times it slips past us if we don't really take time. It's actually listed in Luke 22, 32, and this is what he says. When you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Now again, you're like, oh, great. No, this is heavy duty. Jesus knew Peter was not just going to deny him. He was going to crash and burn. He was going to run off crying and babbling and hit bottom of bottom of bottom. He didn't just lose his faith. He denied knowing Jesus. He left him to save his own skin. But that never stopped Jesus from seeing all that Peter could do. When his face Faith returned. You see, when Jesus looks at each one of us, he doesn't see that we're lost, confused. He doesn't see the worst in us. He sees what we could do through him. He sees what we're capable of. Jesus sees hope where the world sees despair, where the world sees a weak, scared someone, I don't know, who's going to run for their lives. Jesus sees, sees a person who his church can be built on. And once rebuilt, that lost soul is evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. That lost soul is everything. And that's what's truly remarkable about what Jesus is doing at this period, ironically, while he's being abandoned by everybody. Everybody, including God the Father. What's he doing? Peter, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. So at this time, I want you to do something. It's going to look a little, feel a little weird, but look around the room. Look at everybody else in the eye for me. Just look, there's real people next to you, right? Whether you know them or not. Huh? I know, right? Welcome to church. Each one of you is going to hit rock bottom, if you already haven't. Each one of you. And that's hard. I've, I've worked in the ER for a number of years. I flew in a helicopter. You want to see rock bottom, that's it. Regularly. But Jesus says, when you come back. See, he's expecting you to come back. He knows you will come back. He will build you up. Look to your brothers and sisters. Look to the people around you. They will need you. He has an expectation. His church will not just survive. It will thrive in the face of all this. See, that's what hope is about. That's why Jesus chooses people who are not perfect, right? It happens. It's what he can do through you. In John 16, Jesus, he told his disciples, he says, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. In this world, you will have troubles. You are going to hit rock bottom, sorrows, all that kind of stuff. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus came not only to save us, but to give us hope, purpose, and comfort, especially when we have crashed and burned. And his words, I have overcome this world, means no matter what this fallen world throws at us, and it is going to throw stuff at you, he has overcome it. It's a surprise to you. It feels awful. It's not in your plan. You don't get it. It's not a surprise to him. It's not. But in the event we do stumble and we fall, like Peter, Jesus is saying, when you get your strength back, be there for your brothers and sisters. He will be there. Because all things are possible through him. Amen? Amen. So now that we've started to come to the end of the teaching for today, this is what I want you to take from this. This is, this is the meat of it. This is what matters. 
Jesus is the Messiah. And the message that he brings, the message of salvation, is what this world genuinely needs to hear. We need to hear it in our best times, and boy, do we need it in our worst times. Amen? And as a church, we can be there for others that don't have that. That's why the church is here. We want to, in this building, we want to make Jesus Christ known and to share his light. So in just in a minute, we're going to pray. If you, have, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ into your life, if he's not your Savior, we want to give you that opportunity. You can pray with me. I'm going to say the words same quietly to yourself. If you're going through a difficult time, we are going to be here for you. We're going to pray for you at the end. If we can pray for you more, come forward at the end of the service myself. We have prayer partners. We would love to pray for you. We will help you through whatever you're going through. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you raised him from the dead. Today I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today we pray for strength to endure all trials. May everything we go through, both good and bad, may they strengthen our faith in you, may they strengthen our resolve, and may we always lean on you for everything. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It is only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We thank you for your church. And most of all, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.